you for listening to the special broadcasts we've had this week here on the Guadalupe Radio Network. Because today is the March for Life in Washington, D.C., you are about to hear a special pro-life presentation by Father John Ricardo. But on Monday, when you tune in at this time, you'll hear the launch of a brand new GRN-produced show, Morning Joy, Where Truth Matters, hosted by Keith Downey. I'm honored to be the producer for Keith and Morning Joy, and I'm really excited to get to share it with you every day, starting Monday here in this hour on the Guadalupe Radio Network. For more information, visit grnonline.com. Knowing Jesus is the best gift that any person can receive. That we've encountered him is the best thing that's happened in our lives, and making him known by our word and deeds is our greatest joy. Ave Maria Radio presents Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. He's a priest of the Archdiocese of Detroit and is currently the executive director of a nonprofit organization called Acts 29, which exists to work with pastors and their teams to transform their parish culture and reclaim the church's missionary identity. He was ordained in 1996. Well, welcome to uh, round three of uh, Theology on Tap. I had to bring things in tonight in a backpack, so that gives you an idea of what the bibliography is going to look like. So if you're up for a little reading, i got a few things to read. This isn't all of it, but it's it's a little bit that might be helpful. So some of these things are in the um, bibliography. I'll go through them with you as we get into the night. So let's pray. Ask God's blessing on the food you already ate and um, the food that's yet to come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Father in heaven, we come before you today and give you great thanks for the wondrous gift of life, for creating us in your own image and likeness, for calling us into communion with yourself, blessing us with the gift of friendship with each other. Father, we thank you for the hope that is ours in Christ, whose death and resurrection has reconciled us to you and made possible our peace with each other. Lord, we pray that the grace of our baptism would continue to take hold of our lives continue to bring about a truer and deeper conversion, particularly in the area of human dignity and our respect for all human persons, wherever we find them and whatever the situation. Lord, conscious of the many offenses against human dignity, we pray for our country and for our world. We pray that you would bless us with men and women to lead us, who recognize the dignity of all, and who lead and govern and enact laws accordingly. Lord, we ask your blessings upon us tonight. Bless our gathering, our conversation. May your Holy Spirit be in our lips and in our ears and in our hearts. And all these things we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The topic tonight is um, the inviolable dignity of the human person. That means the dignity of the human person that can't be violated, huh? It's a, an expression which is very significant in the church and one which as I mentioned in praying, is in great need of being more deeply understood in the world and in our culture and also within the church, which means within my heart and within yours. And in a topic like this, it's almost like talking about the person of Jesus as we did the first week. Uh, there's too much. So I'm going to try to limit what I say and I'll kind of preface this at the beginning by saying that we can't possibly talk about every issue that impacts human dignity, but we'll hopefully give ourselves something of a foundation upon which to build. And then we're going to look at some particular examples of this where we see the trampling of human dignity in our culture today. We'll look before that at some of the scriptural reasons that we have for understanding the uniqueness, the absolute uniqueness 
of the human person. And then lastly, we're going to get into um, some of the hot issues that are out there and some of the confusion that seems to be abounding in regards to particular matters. So that's where we're going to go tonight. I'm going to try to um, incorporate more from the catechism this week as opposed to what I've done in the past. This is a tremendous resource that the church has given to us. Many of us may not be aware that in the 2,000-year history of the Catholic Church, there's been two universal catechisms. first one came right after the Council of Trent in the 16th century, and then this one, which came um, just in the 1990s. So we haven't had a new catechism for 500 years. Many of us remember the Baltimore Catechism, where we got all the questions and the, the rather concise answers, which was a, a helpful way for some of us to have learned much of what we learned. At the same time, it was not a helpful way for some people to learn what they learned. And so this is a different approach to teaching the catechism, to explaining the faith. If you don't have one, get one and read it. It's tremendous reading. It also has a great index in the back, a topical index, which whenever we have questions about the faith or about some matter of the church is a great place to look. I'm going to be referring to this on a number of occasions, and I'll give you certain paragraphs that would be worth kind of on your own reflecting more at length on. Conscious that for us to really grow in a true understanding of the dignity of every human being, most of us have to have something more sink in, which means we're going to have some reflection and some time to pray and some time to really um, do some further study and ask the Holy Spirit to convict us which he'll gladly do, as to where we're not honoring our brothers and sisters in the way that we should, or treating them with dignity. So I'll refer to this as we go about. Let me begin by um, reading a couple quotes from George Weigel's incredibly thick biography on uh, Pope John Paul II. This was thought to be the definitive biography of the Pope. Unfortunately, he probably has to write another one, because he wasn't expecting the Pope to live as long as he has since he wrote this one. And in the years since he completed this biography, the Pope has done an awful lot. So it wouldn't quite be as thick as this one here, but it would be rather substantial nonetheless. If you don't have this, this is also a great book to pick up. It'll give you a great insight, not simply into the Holy Father, but into, really into the 20th century, into our culture at large, Western culture in particular, and into the interaction of the Church with the culture. So... This is a truly fascinating read, and it's uh, a book which the Pope granted remarkable access to Weigel so that he could write it, and so Weigel has his mind on a a number of issues. Two different places where Weigel writes something about the Pope and his convictions regarding the human person. He says, beginning with his late teenage years under the Nazi occupation, so back in the, uh, the late 1939 and early 1940, the man who became Pope John Paul II gradually came to the conviction that the crisis of the modern world was first of all a crisis of ideas, a crisis in the very idea of the human person. History was driven by culture and the ideas that formed cultures. Ideas had consequences. And if the idea of the human person that dominated a culture was flawed, one of two things would happen. Either that culture would give birth to destructive aspirations, or it would be incapable of realizing its fondest hopes even if it expressed them in the most nobly humanistic terms. We talked the first time uh, when we were looking at Jesus about the need for us to critically think. We made some comments then about how, unfortunately, oftentimes it happens in the educational sphere that children and adults aren't really taught how to do that, to think critically, and that we get so much of our information from that little remote control thing that we hold in our hands. And if we're really going to get sound ideas, we have to put down the little remote control thing 
And we have to open up things like this. And you have to read. That's how we learn. And we have to discuss. And we have to learn again how to have rational arguments without appealing to emotions or appealing to authority or making attacks on people. Things stand and fall according to the merit of the idea, not according to who it is that's saying it or how loudly he or she is saying it. And I think he's right on. He's talking about how the fundamental problem with us is that we have a bad idea of what it means to be a human person. He lived through this with Nazi Germany and the occupation of Poland. He also lived through it with the former Soviet Union and the occupation of Poland and all the um, countries that were taken in on that. But he also says that the idea of the human person can be flawed in a culture like ours. And even though we word things supposedly in proper ways, we still at the same time give birth to destructive vehicles in our culture. Hopefully that will become clear as we go along. Second quote from the same book, back in 1968 now, the Pope who was now the uh, Archbishop of Krakow was writing to a priest friend of his, and he wrote that the crisis, he thought, of modernity, the last couple hundred years, involved, quote-unquote, a degradation, indeed a pulverization of the fundamental uniqueness of each human person. Communism was one obvious, dangerous, and powerful expression of this crisis, as Nazism and fascism had been, but the dehumanization of the human world took place in other ways, and it could happen in free societies, like ours. Whenever another human being was reduced to an object for manipulation by a manager, a shop foreman, a scientific researcher, a politician, or even a lover, the pulverization of the fundamental uniqueness of each human person was taking place. What Voitia used to describe to his social ethics classes, he used to teach philosophy, as utilitarianism, or the making usefulness to me, the sole criterion of human relationships was another grave threat to the human future. It was not a threat with nuclear weapons, secret police, and a gulag archipelago, but it was dangerous, and part of the reason was that it was less obvious. Now that may sound like, I don't know, the ramblings of someone who's lived through a couple of terrible experiences and whatnot, but I have up here on the bibliography two books written by a man whose name I won't mention, who is the chair of ethics at Princeton University. One of them is entitled Practical Ethics. The other is entitled Rethinking Life and Death. One of his chapters in this book is simply entitled What's Wrong with Killing? And among other things, he has espoused and advocated and taught the idea that it's time for us to stop treating human life as sacred simply because it's human. So this isn't happening in the former Soviet Union or in Nazi Germany, or in some far-off country, but it's happening at an Ivy League school where we teach the best and the brightest of our country, and we teach them what's wrong with killing. Among the other things that he would advocate is um, infanticide, pushing the idea that it's just fine and should be fine for parents to have the right to kill their children up until a certain age, say four months, for whatever reason. child obviously isn't healthy, doesn't have much quote-unquote quality of life. What good are they really going to be for society? How happy could they possibly be given the impairments that they have? So therefore, they have no right to life, because according to him, they don't qualify yet for the status of personhood. And so, let's just kill them. He would teach, and does teach, that all human beings are not necessarily persons, and some persons are not human beings. So we may have a mentally handicapped child, or a mentally handicapped adult, who doesn't somehow measure up to the status of personhood, but I happen to have a really intelligent chihuahua. 
who shows more apparent cognitive capacity to think, more feeling, more affection, brings me more enjoyment. So the chihuahua becomes a person, whereas the handicapped adult or child doesn't qualify. We'll get into some of this as we go along. So this man, unfortunately, is one of the people in our own country, he's not an American, he's teaching in our country, who's at the forefront of exactly what the Pope was talking about, not simply in 68, but back in the late 30s and early 40s, where he was witnessing a total trampling on the dignity of man, the human person. So mindful that that's the world in which we live, he has often referred to the Pope as a culture of death. Mindful that we are called to help bring about a culture of life. That's our theme tonight. So there's lots of places that we could look at and we could start. I want to start by looking in Scripture, and then we'll look at the Catechism, and then we'll kind of make some observations about what's happening now. In a certain sense, as we try to learn why the human person is unique, and why the human person has an inviolable dignity, which means it cannot be trampled against, you could say that the entire Bible is one long explanation of the uniqueness of man and woman. For the whole of scriptures reveals to us God's plan for us. This wasn't written for giraffes. It wasn't revealed to baby seals. This wasn't revealed to hippopotami. It was revealed to us. The good news is for us, for you and me, without distinction. Everyone, everywhere, for all times. Every culture, every generation, every age, every ethnic background. Doesn't matter. So... I'm just going to pull out three or four quick places that we can look to in Scripture to kind of grow in our understanding of the foundation for human dignity, why the human person is absolutely unique, but we could hunt and pack throughout all of Scripture to do that. So I want to look at two passages in the Old Testament and two in the New. Some of you brought a Bible, I saw that, so you can follow along. It's, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, good place to start, first book of the Bible, beginning in verse 26, then we're going to look at chapter 2. Then we're going to look at uh, the Gospel of John. Then we're going to look at the second letter of St. Peter. We'll get into these two stories of Genesis in the next series that we're going to do on the Theology on Tap, where we're going to do the Theology of the Body, which is going to pull out a lot more from what these two texts and what I'm going to say now. But I'm going to say just a couple things about these. Beginning in verse 26 then. Then God said, after having created all the rest of the world, then God said, let us make man, that's not the male, but the human person, in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man, the human person, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, the human person. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And so it was. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So among other things that's getting revealed to us here in this first story of creation, there's two stories of creation for those of us who either didn't know that or may have forgotten, is that the human person who's created now at, in this account at the very ending of the rest of the creation of the world, 
signifies the uniqueness of man and woman and that we are the crowning, if you will, or the apex of all of creation. And we alone are formed in the image and likeness of God. God doesn't deliberate with himself before he makes the cattle. He doesn't deliberate with himself before he makes ivy or clouds or the universe at large. He does deliberate before he makes man. And we alone are created in his image and likeness. We alone are given dominion. And dominion doesn't mean that we have lordship in the sense of we can do just whatever the heck we want with the earth. That's one of the reasons why the ecology and the care for the environment is a crucial tenet of Catholic social teaching. Because God entrusts to us the world so that we, who are his visible representatives on the earth, entrusted with his authority, if you will, will care for it the way he does. And the way he cares for the world is he's generous. He loves it. He doesn't manipulate it and exploit it. And so it's one of the things that we have to do in being created in his image and likeness is to necessarily care for the world in which we live. That's why that's such a key point. Man alone is spoken to directly by God. He doesn't speak directly to the rhinoceros. He does speak directly to us and say to us, be fruitful and multiply. And so for these and for other reasons that we can pull out, which we can get into more perhaps in some discussion or uh, as we get into the discussions on the theology of the body, this is the foundational place where we begin to see the dignity of the human person. We're the crowning of creation. There is nothing like us in the rest of the universe. Yet one of the paradoxes is at the same time we're created out of the same stuff as all the rest of life. The dust of the earth. Second passage, Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 7, 7 and 8, and then verses 18 to 25. So this is, again, a second story of creation. Not that God forgot and said, oh yeah, there's more. He's revealing something more about what he's already revealed in a different kind of way. And now, whereas the first story of creation in Genesis 1, the human person is created at the end, which highlights the uniqueness. Now he's created at the beginning and then everything is brought to him which also highlights the uniqueness in a different way. So beginning in verse 7, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So God does this. God himself, the imagery here anyway, is that God himself fashions the human person out of the dust of the ground and then he breathes his own divine life into the one he's created. This is also very significant in helping us to understand why in John's Gospel, when after Jesus rises from the dead and he greets the apostles in the upper room, he breathes on them. He breathed on them and then he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Well, in order to understand that, you need to understand Genesis to understand that what's happening in the resurrection and his appearance to the apostles is a new creation's happening. That's what it's all about. Just as God once formed us out of the ground, so now he's reforming us and he's giving us the power of his Holy Spirit. That's what's being communicated. So he breathes his own life into us, and man became a living being. And then jump into verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone, because now we're talking about the male. So I will make for him a helper who is fit for him. We're going to get into all that when we talk about the theology of the body. Suffice to say right now, ladies, that helper, the word in Hebrew is azer. This word appears in the Old Testament 21 times. 19 times it refers to divine aid. This is not a servant. This is not someone to fetch my slippers. This is a help without which the man can't be what he was made to be, an absolutely unique kind of help. It's divine help. That's what the woman's created as, so that the two of them can be together what alone they cannot be. As I say, we'll get into all that when we do theology of the body. We can just answer that question right now. 
So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air. So now the story goes on to talk about God trying to find and create for the man a helper who's fit for him. So he makes all these creatures and he brings them to the man. He says, what about this? He goes, no. What about that? No. How about this? No. So all the animals are brought to the man and he exercises dominion by naming them. But none of them are a suitable partner. None of them are one who is equal to him in dignity. And so then God takes from the man something and forms it into a woman. So God is involved in making the woman, even as he was involved in making the man, presents the woman to the man, and finally the man speaks for the first time in Scripture and says, that, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And then in naming her, he names himself. And we come to understand that the human person is made for communion. So in both of those passages, briefly anyway, one of the things that's being communicated to us is that what's granted to man, to the human person, is nothing like what's granted to the rest of creation. Gospel of John, chapter 1. Always a good place to begin. So the Old Testament helps us understand that everything that's made in the world is made for us. Pretty incredible. Everything was made for us. Out of all of creation, nothing occupies the place that we do. Nothing's called to communion with God in the way that we are. Roses, as beautiful as they are, aren't called to communion with God. They won't partake in the divine nature. You and I were called to. You and I were granted, offered, if we will accept, the gift of friendship with God. That's what we see over and over again in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we take a leap beyond that. And so, beginning in uh, verse 1 of chapter 1 of John, in the beginning was the Word, second person of the Trinity, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So John's setting up right now the word of God, which has existed forever, which shares in the divine nature, is the second person of the Trinity. And then this word, he'll say in verse 14, became flesh, took on human flesh for us and lived among us. So great is the love of God for you and me, that it was his delight, even though we had rebelled against him and wandered away and cursed him, it was his delight to himself become a creature, to walk this earth, to suffer and to die for us so that we might be reconciled to him, restored to what it was that we were originally created to be back in the garden, and then be able to partake in his own divine nature, which is the last passage, which is Second Peter. I've already spoken about that last week, I think. Chapter 1, verse 4. From those four passages, we can make a number of points to have a foundation upon which to build for the uniqueness of the human person. One, we're the crowning of creation. No one else is made in the image and likeness of God. No one else is called to communion with God. No one else is given and granted lordship or dominion over the earth but us. Again, not exploitation, but dominion, as the Lord exercises dominion. We learn that from the Old Testament. We also learn from the New Testament that for us, God has become one of us. It's the old expression of the early church that God has become man, so that man, men, men and women, could become God, so that you and I can share in his own divine life. The angels weren't granted something like this. The second person, the Trinity, did not become an angel to save them. He has become a man to save us. And lastly, we can say that we can also see the uniqueness of the human person in the destiny of every single human person, which is heaven. Communion, participation in the divine life, and unending life and joy. 
Okay? So that's a brief thing of what we can get from Scripture. Let me just jump to the catechism real quick. And I know this is a little bit more academic or formal than what we did last week, but it'll get us to some discussion which will become not so academic, I'm sure. Paragraph 27. And I would encourage you to write these down on your bibliography so that you can go home and reflect with them. Paragraph 27 of the Catechism. The desire for God is written in the human heart because man is created by God and for God. And God never ceases to draw man to himself. Only in God will he find the truth and happiness he never stops searching for. The dignity of man rests above all on the fact that he is called to communion with God. The elephants are not. This invitation to converse with God is addressed to man as soon as he comes into being. As soon as he comes into being. From the moment of conception. For if man exists at all, it is because God has created him through love. And through love continues to hold him in existence. So the fact that any human being is, there only are, because God has willed it to be so. They're not here by chance. They're not here by accident. They're not here by mistake. They're here because he has willed them to be here. Willed me and you to be here because his will for us is that we would enjoy his friendship for all eternity. Paragraph 356. Of all visible creatures, only man is able to know and love his creator. So out of everything that exists on this earth, only you and I have the capacity to know God and to love him. Because only you and I have a will and have been given the gift of freedom so that we can use that will so as to choose. I mean, the purpose of having freedom is to love. That's why we're created free. That's the reason for freedom, is to love. No freedom, I can't love. It would be compulsory. So of all the creatures, only we can know and love our Creator. We are the only creature on earth that God has willed for its own sake. He alone is called to share by knowledge and love in God's own life. It was for this end that he was created, to share in God's own life. And this is the fundamental reason for his dignity. Paragraph 358, God created everything for man. Everything for man. Man, in turn, was created to serve and love God and to offer all creation back to him. Let's jump to paragraph 1700. The dignity of the human person is rooted in his creation, in the image and likeness of God. It is fulfilled in his vocation to divine happiness or beatitude. It is essential to a human being freely to direct himself to this fulfillment. So you and I, by giving the gift of freedom, freedom also now then becomes, we could say, something like a burden or responsibility, in that I can abuse it. I have a conscience, I'm obliged to form it. My conscience doesn't automatically tell me what's right and wrong. It must be taught, it must be formed, it must be shaped. Unfortunately, oftentimes it gets misshaped and deformed and malformed. So you and I have an obligation to seek truth, to get involved in the destiny of our life, to put the clicker down, in other words to actually begin to pray and to reflect and to ask ourselves, why are we here? Where are we going? How do we get there? Paragraph 1702. The divine image is present in every man. Every man. 1703. Endowed with a spiritual and immortal soul, the human person is the only creature on earth that God has willed for its own sake. From his conception, he is destined for eternal beatitude. And then, kind of lastly, in a sense of some general statements on this, beginning in paragraph 1929. This is a section in the Catechism that deals with social justice. It actually begins in 1928, but I'm going to read 1929. Social justice can be obtained only in respecting the transcendent dignity of man. 
1930, respect for the human person entails respect for the rights that flow from his dignity as a creature. These rights are prior to society and must be recognized by it. They are the basis of the moral legitimacy of every authority. By flouting them or refusing to recognize them in its positive legislation, a society undermines its own moral legitimacy. That's the Pope's second point at the beginning of the quote that we were talking about. That regardless of how noble our aspirations may be, if in fact our culture is not based on and grounded in a respect for the absolute dignity of every human person, we cannot reach the goals that we claim to have. It's impossible, however noble they may appear. For if it does not respect them, authority can rely only on force or violence to obtain obedience from its subjects. And it is the church's role to remind men of goodwill of these rights and to distinguish them from unwarranted or false claims. All right, those are some kind of foundational points for getting into some discussion of some particular issues. The fifth commandment in the catechism, the section dealing with the fifth commandment, deals with a number of things which are pretty pertinent for us in our country right now. It begins in 2258, after quoting both Exodus and Deuteronomy, where it lists the fifth commandment. Human life is sacred because from its beginning it involves the creative action of God and it remains forever in a special relationship with the Creator who is its sole end. God alone is the Lord of life from its beginning until its end. No one can under any circumstance claim for himself the right to directly destroy an innocent human being. Scripture specifies the prohibition contained in the fifth commandment, do not slay the innocent and the righteous. The deliberate murder of an innocent person is gravely contrary to the dignity of the human being, to the golden rule, and to the holiness of the Creator. The law forbidding it is universally valid. It obliges each and every one, always, everywhere. And again, after giving that as a basic thing, it then goes on to talk about what's known as the legitimate self-defense, which becomes the means by which we talk about something like just wars. So. It helps people to explain that, okay, the commandment prohibits the intentional murder of an innocent person. So if that's the case, how come the church does not say that war is intrinsically evil or that the death penalty is intrinsically evil? And they're not. Abortion and euthanasia are intrinsically evil, meaning always, all the time, they're wrong. War and the death penalty are not intrinsically evil, meaning always, all the time, they're wrong. The church will go on to say that for war to be justified, very specific situations must be met. We can see that in um, paragraphs 22, 63 to 67. I won't get into that, just so that you can look at it on your own. It's also in, uh, in a particular way in 2308 and 09. You can look at that whole section on your own, because we can get into some good discussion, I think, in a minute. But it is to set up the grounds by which, if the prohibition against murder is there, how is it that I can be justified in protecting my family if an intruder breaks into my house and in my attempt to ward them off, which is an obligation I have to care for those I love, I have an obligation to care for my wife and my children, and in attempting to protect them and to keep you from harming them, you happen to die, I have not committed murder, unless I intended to kill you, in which case I have committed murder. So my intention becomes significant there. The death penalty in paragraphs 2263, 4, 5, 6, and 7 becomes significant, particularly in paragraphs 2265, 6, and 7. And it's important for us to understand this because this is something that's caused confusion for people to understand what the church teaches about the sanctity of life and how it can be that abortion's always all the time wrong or euthanasia's always all the time wrong and the death penalty 
while it's not always all the time wrong, the church is basically saying, at least in the Western culture, you shouldn't do that. But they're different species of actions. So the Catechism states, largely basing on the, the Pope's encyclical on the Gospel of Life, legitimate defense can be not only a right, but a grave duty for one who is responsible for the lives of others. The defense of the common good requires that an unjust aggressor be rendered unable to cause harm. For this reason, those who legitimately hold authority also have the right to use arms to repel aggressors against the civil community entrusted to their responsibility. The efforts of the state to curb the spread of behavior harmful to people's rights and the basic rules of civil society correspond to the requirement of safeguarding the common good. Legitimate public authority has the right and the duty to inflict punishment proportionate to the gravity of the offense. Punishment has the primary aim of redressing the disorder introduced by the offense. When it is willingly accepted by the guilty party, it assumes the value of expiation. Punishment then, in addition to defending public order and protecting people's safety, has a medicinal purpose. As far as possible, it must contribute to the correction of the guilty party, which calls us to really look at our penal system. And then lastly, assuming that the guilty party's identity and responsibility have been fully determined, which is assuming a lot, the traditional teaching of the church does not exclude recourse to the death penalty if this is the only possible way of effectively defending human lives against the unjust aggressor. If, however, non-lethal means are sufficient to defend and protect people's safety from the aggressor, authority will limit itself to such means, as these are more in keeping with the concrete conditions of the common good and more in conformity with the dignity of the human person, in this case, with the murderer. So simply because I've committed murder doesn't mean I've lost my dignity. I'm still created in the image and likeness of God. I'm still destined for eternal life for him if I will repent. Today, in fact, continues as a consequence of the possibilities which the state has for effectively preventing crime by rendering one who has committed an offense incapable of doing harm without definitively taking away from him the possibility of redeeming himself, the cases in which the execution of the offender is an absolute necessity, and then it quotes the Pope, are very rare, if not practically non-existent. It's important to hear all that in its fullness and then to look at it because it's technical. huh? But the gist of the church's teaching is to say to the state, you have the authority entrusted to you because you have to care for the common good to use lethal means at times. We're asking you, given what we can do to protect the dignity of those who trample against the dignity of others, never to use it. However, the death penalty, which is not intrinsically evil, is something different from abortion, which is intrinsically evil. Let me switch gears here a little bit. Since Roe v. Wade, there have been how many children killed in this country alone that we know of? More than 40 million. I don't know about you, but that's just a number to me. So how many people here have been to Washington, D.C.? How many people have seen the Vietnam Wall Memorial? It has, I think, 56,000 names on it, something close to that. I forget how many feet long it is. If you made the exact same memorial for the victims of abortion in the last 30 years, it would stretch from the wall, where it is now, on the mall in Washington, D.C., to the city of Baltimore, and almost back again, about 40 miles long. How many people have been to uh, a football game at University of Michigan Stadium? A few women's hands, that's lovely. University of Michigan Stadium holds about 100, and they keep changing the seating capacity, but it's give or take 107, I think is what the science says now, 107,000 people. So imagine Michigan has 12 home games next year packed to capacity. That's how many children we kill a year in this country, at any time, for any reason. Even in the most barbaric fashion, which is what's known as partial birth abortion, which is simply infanticide. 
The child is birthed entirely, except for the head, which is still in the birth canal, which means in order to get there, you have to turn the baby, huh? So the child is turned, delivered, except for the head, at which point the arms and legs are outside the woman, and then the doctor takes basically a pair of scissors and injects them into the back of the child's skull, opens them, takes a vacuum tube and inserts it into the skull, sucks out the brain, collapses the head, and delivers the rest of the child. That's an entirely legal procedure. Entirely legal. For any reason. And a parent doesn't have to get notified for a child who's a minor. You can't even watch an R-rated movie if you're in high school without permission slip from your parent. So how in the world do we justify that? Because that's a law which says that's an okay thing to do. And it's a right which has to be defended. So how is that justified? Because science and medicine clearly show, thanks to ultrasound technologies, huh, those of you who are or were pregnant or will be pregnant, either have or will come home with an ultrasound. And it'll go in the fridge, you'll keep it in your wallet or in your purse, and you'll show people. Thanks to the wonders of ultrasound technology, there's two things which are incontrovertible. It's human and it's alive. So if it's human and it's alive and we have a law that says you cannot kill innocent human life, how is it that we also have a law that says this is okay? Remember, the goal here is to think critically. So clearly those who advocate for this are denying something. What are they denying? Well, they don't deny the humanity, they acknowledge it's human. In fact, the same author that I quoted earlier would say that, you know, it used to be two premises in conclusion. First premise, it's wrong to kill innocent human life. Second premise, the child in the womb is clearly innocent human life. Therefore, it's wrong to commit abortion. And he would say that for years, the tactic of pro-abortion was to deny the second premise, that the child is innocent human life. Well, as he admits, you can't deny that anymore, thanks to ultrasounds. He says you should just start attacking the first one. It's wrong to kill innocent human life. They deny that it's a person. That's the whole crux of the matter. That is the issue here. They deny that the child in the womb, from the moment of conception, is a person. Which means you and I have, and everyone has, a very simple either-or question that has to get asked. The question is either all human beings are persons, and therefore have rights, fundamentally the right to life, without which any other right is pretty meaningless, or else only some human beings are persons, and therefore have rights, most especially the right to life. It's got to be one or the other. If only some are persons, what is the scale we're going to use? And who is it who gets to get vested with the authority to exercise that? What do we use? IQ? Ability to communicate? Personality type? Sex? Height? Beauty? What do you use? And how is it that certain people got to be the ones to determine we were going to use this criteria? There's a senator in California who has put forth the idea that the child becomes a person. This is a senator. The child becomes a person the moment the parents take it home. Critical thinking. Anyone can be a senator. <laughs> One of the people who was running for president, who is no longer running for president, said, when asked this, the child becomes a person whenever the mother wants it to. How's that for arbitrariness? Yeah, do you get to change your mind when they throw the tantrums? Yeah. Well, according to certain professors of ethics, perhaps. You see that the point here, and this is a very important point, we haven't looked at the catechism in trying to answer this. We haven't quoted the Pope. We haven't looked at scripture. We haven't appealed to faith at all. This issue has nothing to do with faith. This issue has to do with reason, with thinking, with thinking critically. 
It has everything to do with faith in the sense of what we believe the child is created for, but it doesn't have to do with faith in the sense of my reason has to be able to come up with an answer as to whether all human beings are persons or only some are. What world do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a world like the current pope used to live in, in a country that he used to live in, where someone arbitrarily exercised authority which said, beginning today, these people are no longer persons, therefore they can be executed. If you're a black man or woman in South Carolina in 1820, you're not a person. According to what? The color of your skin? There was a time when we did not accord women the full rights that we accord men, among other things, the right to vote. According to what? Sex? And unfortunately, the issue now that we have in front of us, which is far more substantial than any other issue, not only because of the gravity of what's happening, it's human life being killed, but also the scale. We're talking about 1.2 million every year. Think of the headlines in the papers when a person is beheaded in Iraq. As horrific as that is, and it's horrific. We just had someone in our own state huh, who, who lost his brother who was beheaded. A horrific offense. And people are rightly outraged. Well, the normal method for abortion is dismemberment. The typical way you abort a child. You begin to dismember it in the womb. The only reason they do partial birth abortion is because the child is now so big that you can't dismember it in the way that you could when it was smaller. So it has to be killed in this fashion. And we, as we engage the issue, have to do what we can to keep the issue on the level of reason and to help people to understand that any decision which is going to allow for this to continue is going to be a necessarily arbitrary decision, which means if there are certain people who are granting the rights of personhood or the status of personhood to certain ones now, then that means it can be taken away. Could be taken away when you're older, could be taken away when you're sick, and that is not a human world to live in, where we fear for the very well-being of our lives because our personhood can be lost. I gave you in the handouts that Rosemary put out a, a set of different things. First, there's this a short bibliography or a long bibliography, depending on how you want to look at, which lists um, a couple of different books, some different sources from the church. And then what we're up against is the guy that I was quoting earlier. If you want to really read a truly frightening person, read the man who's teaching at Princeton, who's writing about what's wrong with killing, just to understand that people are getting taught an entirely different way of thinking about human dignity or the lack thereof. On the back side of that is a uh, brief quote from paragraph 27 in one of the documents of Vatican II, which talks about the offenses against human dignity, and it lists them. That's why I said at the beginning of this, there are a multitude of offenses we could get into. One of them, which would be most notable, would be pornography. Pornography makes, some people estimate, more money than the movie, book, and music industries combined. Every single technological advance on the internet has been driven by pornography so that the images can get there faster and clearer. And now, thanks to the internet, it's just a click away. And it's wreaking havoc in marriages, and it's leading to addictions for men and for women, and it's totally built upon the exploitation of other human persons. I'm going to use you for my enjoyment. It's the whole premise. So that, as well as all these other things which are listed in here, we could do a session on almost all of those. Then there is um, a one-page thing which is titled A Voter's Guide. This came from the Wall Street Journal maybe a week or two ago. An editorial written by Archbishop Myers, who is the Archbishop of Newark. 
which was written in response to much of the confusion that was going around and continues to go around, started a few weeks back, about the headline, not just in our papers, but in uh, a number of papers, that Catholics are allowed to vote for a candidate who is pro-abortion. They said pro-choice, but pro-choice doesn't mean anything. Call it what it is, it's pro-abortion. Choices have objects. You came in here tonight and the waiter or the waitress came over and said, have you made a decision? You said, I have. And they say, well, what would you choose? You say, I choose. And she looks at you and she says, well, that's nice. What would you choose? Well, I choose. But you choose what? <laughs> Choices have an object. So what is it you're choosing? I choose death. Choose the right to kill something. Say what you mean. And then lastly, this, this is actually the text of, if you're familiar with the story which came in the free press and other places, which alluded to a private communication between Cardinal Ratzinger, who is the um, head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in Rome, between him and Archbishop Cardinal McCarrick, who is the Archbishop of Washington, D.C., which then became public, talking about, among other things, what bishops should do with a politician who is notably pro-abortion, as well as our obligations as we make decisions. This is for you to take home, huh? And then there's also a response from uh, Father Bob McClory, who's the Chancellor of the Archdiocese, uh, when that paper ran that uh, front-page story. Conscious that the story didn't actually quote the text, it's worth you having the text so that we can see what it is Ratzinger said. Number two in that uh, letter says, The church teaches that abortion or euthanasia is a grave sin. The encyclical letter, that's the letter that the Pope wrote on the Gospel of Life or Evangelium Vitae, its Latin title, with reference to judicial decisions or civil laws that authorize or promote abortion or euthanasia, states that there is a grave and clear obligation to oppose them by conscientious objection. In the case of an intrinsically unjust law, such as a law permitting abortion or euthanasia, it is therefore never licit to obey it or to take part in a propaganda campaign in favor of such a law or vote for it. Christians have a grave obligation of conscience not to cooperate formally in practices which, even if permitted by civil legislation, are contrary to God's law. Indeed, from the moral standpoint, it is never licit to cooperate formally in evil. This cooperation can never be justified either by invoking respect for the freedom of others or by appealing to the fact that civil law permits it or requires it. The image would be, it only took the heroism of men and women who recognized the injustice of slavery and who refused to hide behind the fact that this is the law of the land to change that. And in the same way that, please God, some of our men and women who are leading our nation would have wanted to think of themselves as leaders in that change, we need them to be leaders in the change now to recognize the dignity of life at its most vulnerable stage, the beginning and the end. Number three, not all moral issues have the same weight as abortion and euthanasia. This is very important. For example, if a Catholic were to be at odds with the Holy Father on the application of capital punishment or on the decision to wage war, he would not for that reason be considered unworthy to present himself to receive Holy Communion. While the Church exhorts civil authorities to seek peace, not war, and to exercise discretion and mercy in imposing punishment on criminals, it may still be permissible to take up arms and to repel an aggressor or to have recourse to capital punishment. There may be a legitimate diversity of opinion even among Catholics about waging war and applying the death penalty. But not, however, with regard to abortion and euthanasia, because you're talking about dignity of life and the trampling of it at an innocent stage. And then the very ending of this, and this is directly what the Free Press article was alluding to. 
A Catholic would be guilty of formal cooperation in evil and so unworthy to present himself for Holy Communion if he were to deliberately vote for a candidate precisely because of the candidate's permissive stand on abortion and or euthanasia. So the way this was presented was, well, obviously, if you're voting for somebody because you like the fact that they're in favor of killing innocent human life, well, then you're not to present yourself for communion because you are cooperating in a formal fashion with evil. Your will is very disordered. So I'm attracted to the candidate precisely because he or she is in favor of taking innocent human life. But what they made the statement then to say in misquoting Ratzinger here was, when a Catholic does not share a candidate's stand in favor of abortion and or euthanasia, but votes for that candidate for other reasons, it's considered remote material cooperation, which can be permitted. And then somehow that just became a period there. Or, well, and then there was some other words that were added, but those don't seem to be all that significant. But the words which follow are extraordinarily significant. It can be permitted in the presence of proportionate reasons. And the sense of proportionate reasons here is just what proportion means, huh? Imagine you got a scale, and you're trying to balance something out. So the question becomes, what is it that I could put on this side which would be of equal gravity to life? Zip. Dental plan? Better housing, very important issue. Just wages, very important issue. Care for the poor, very important issue. But nothing that is proportionate to life. You either have life or you don't. There is no balance here because there is nothing that can offset life. Because there are legitimate uses of war and there can be legitimate exercises of the death penalty, even though the church would have very precise situations whereby war can be engaged in, as well as the church basically saying to people, though you have access to the death penalty, do not do it. If for no other reason than the dignity of the person who you would execute, not to mention the fact that how they got there may or may not have been just, given our legal system so often. Those things are not intrinsically evil. Abortion is intrinsically evil, always, all the time. Therefore, nothing can offset that. Even within the church, we can disagree on whether or not we think it's a just war. Even within the church, we can disagree on whether or not we think the death penalty should be used in this specific situation. But within the church, you and I cannot disagree on whether or not abortion is okay. That's the reason. And the death penalty, as horrific as it is, when it's exercised, executes how many? We kill 1.2 million people every year, and we call it a good thing. We're doing exactly what is the origin of the fall, which is we want to determine for ourselves what is good and what is evil. And we're now calling good evil and evil good. So we're calling the dismemberment of children or the taking of innocent life at its most vulnerable stage when it's elderly, we're calling that a good thing. When what that is, is an offense against human dignity. That's the taking of human life which was created in the image and likeness of God, which is destined for communion with him forever. It's not to say that those other things aren't serious. Not at all. But again, going back to Ratzinger's point number three here, not all moral issues have the same weight as abortion and euthanasia. See, we have to be careful that we don't leap from talking about something on an objective plane, what is being chosen, versus making a subjective statement presuming why someone has done what they've done. Regardless of why they've done what they've done, objectively speaking, it's grave. But I know kids whose parents have told them, whatever you do tonight, don't come home pregnant. I know kids whose parents have driven them to abortion clinics telling them, I will not let you have this child. Is the daughter in that case culpable for the abortion? Are you kidding? No way. But the mother is, who drove her daughter there. 
That's why, you know, the cause of Dorothy Day has been opened by the church. Cardinal O'Connor, now deceased from New York, opened the cause. So her cause for sainthood. And she's still in the investigation stage. Dorothy Day would be a phenomenal gift to the church for a number of reasons, not least of which is she had an abortion. And she repented. It gives us all hope. Three of the greatest figures in Scripture, Moses, David, and Paul, all committed murder. Gives me a bit of comfort. <laughs> you know, there's no question that God's mercy is everlasting if we'll ask for it. That's not the point. Nor is the point to jump into someone's subjective state. But the first thing you have to do in evaluating a moral action is ask the question, what is it that's being chosen to be done? In this case, what's being chosen is to take innocent human life. Good question. There's actually two issues there. The first is the issue of the law. The point here, and the reason why I talk about reason versus faith, and our response to the law has nothing to do with our faith. It is not my personal opinion. The law is a bad law. Reasonably speaking, it's a bad law. Not according to the catechism. Not according to Genesis. According to science. The law is a dumb law. When Roe v. Wade was written, they said, we don't know when life begins. That's an ignorant position now. Unfortunately, the issue has become so polemical, and we don't know how to talk about the issue except from matters of perspective of faith, one of the best things that we can do is get educated, bless be God you are, from a medical perspective, to get educated so that we can talk totally without this. I'm not talking to you even as a Christian. I'm talking to you as someone who has a rational mind who wants to engage the issue. Let's look at the issue. Why is it that you say that it begins when the child's born? Why is the law constructed that way? Well, it was constructed that way out of ignorance. Well, we have technology which tells us that that is ignorance and that life has begun long before that because from the moment of conception, everything the child needs is already there. All it needs is an environment and nutrients, the same things I need. This has been Crisis the Answer program number 703. For a CD of this or any of our programs, go to AveMariaRadio.net and click on Store or order by leaving a voicemail at 734-930-4506. 734-930-4506 for program number 703, The Inviolability of the Human Person. Christ is the Answer was originally recorded and edited by Henry Root and is a production of AveMariaRadio.net. Tune in next time when Father John Ricardo addresses a topic of Christian concern from the Catholic perspective. There's a pattern to discipleship. God calls and we respond. Our response involves more than words, however. It involves deeds, notably deeds of repentance. We are unworthy of the graces we receive. We must seek after the life-changing experience that our vocation requires. Find out more next on Breaking the Bread. The calling of the brother in this Sunday's Gospel evokes Elisha's commissioning by the prophet Elijah. As Elijah comes upon Elisha working on his family's farm, so Jesus sees the brothers working by the seaside. And as Elisha left his mother and father to follow Elijah, so the brothers leave their father to follow after Jesus. Jesus' promise to make them fishers of men evokes Israel's deepest hopes. The prophet Jeremiah announced a new and greater exodus in which God would send many fishermen to restore the Israelites from exile, as once he brought them out of slavery in Egypt, as we'll hear in the scriptures this Sunday. By Jesus' cross and resurrection, this new exodus has already begun, and the apostles are the first of a new people of God. The church 
a renewed covenant family based not on blood ties, but on faith in Jesus and the power of the Spirit and a holy desire to do the Father's will. From now on, even our most important worldly concerns, family relations, occupations, and possessions must be judged in light of the gospel, as St. Paul tells us in this Sunday's epistle. The first word of Jesus' gospel is repent, and it means that we must totally change our way of thinking and living, turning away from evil and doing all for the love of God. And we should be consoled by Nineveh's repentance in this Sunday's first reading. Even the wicked city of Nineveh could repent at Jonah's preaching. And in Jesus, we have a greater than Jonah. We have God himself come down as our Savior to show sinners the way as we sing in this Sunday's psalm. This should give us hope that loved ones who remain far from God will find compassion if they turn to Him. But we too must continue along the path of repentance, striving daily to pattern our lives after Christ as His younger brothers and sisters filled and empowered by His Spirit. This is Scott Hahn for Breaking the Bread. Breaking the Bread is a production of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. If you'd like to receive written copies of Dr. Hahn's reflections on the Sunday Mass readings, you can contact us by email at staff at salvationhistory.com or call us at 740-264-9535. That's 740-264-9535. Celebrating 2,000 years of truth, this is the Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. Lent is right around the corner, and now is a good time to begin preparing. Would you like to gain a better understanding of the Sacrament of Reconciliation? Hi, I'm Dave Palmer here at the GRN. On Friday, January 26th, during the noon hour Central Time, I'll host a live special network program with Father James Yamauchi, focusing on the Sacrament of Reconciliation from the perspective of a parish priest. This is your chance to not only learn, but also to call in with your questions. It's Friday, January 26th, beginning at 12 noon Central. Join us in praying a memorare for families experiencing separation. May they find the inspiration for communication and the appeasement required for forgiveness. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of Virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer me. Amen. We pray for all your intentions daily. May God bless you. The Guadalupe Radio Network invites you to listen to A Life Lived Joyfully, a show exploring the call to holiness and the life of virtue. Join our hosts, Martha Fernanda Sardinia, Monsignor Charles Pope, Steve Gleason, and Sarah Soto as they discuss ways to live an authentic Catholic life, striving for holiness and growing in virtue. Tune in Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Eastern. You can be part of the conversation, too, with questions and comments at 877-757-9424. 
Hey, yo, Mick, from now until midnight on February 20th, the GRN is raffling off a 2024 black Mercedes-Benz GLB 250. No wonder you're losing focus out there. How do you win a beauty like that? Just go to grnonline.com or call 888-784-3476. Well, what are we waiting for? Hurry up and knock this bum out, kid. And I'm Tracy Sable, welcoming you to our continuing coverage of all the pro-life activities leading up to the 2024 March for Life in Washington, D.C. later this morning. And we're going to be joined by other members of the EWTN news team and a long lineup of pro-life leaders. Coming up next, live from the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception, join us for the closing Mass of the National Prayer Vigil for Life. Immediately following the Mass, stay tuned for our extensive coverage of all of the day's events. This includes interviews, discussions, and speeches from pro-life leaders around the country in preparation for the Rally for Life on the National Mall. The rally is followed by the March for Life through the streets of Washington, D.C. And be sure to visit our website EWTN.com for all the airtimes for all the day's events in your area. You can also join us on Facebook and X and be sure to check out all the great Catholic programming at EWTN On Demand and be sure to download the EWTN app so EWTN goes everywhere you do. And now we take you to the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception for the closing Mass for the National Prayer Vigil for Life. Live from Washington, D.C. The Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception and the Eternal Word Television Network present the closing mass of the National Prayer Vigil for Life 2024. With the most Reverend Earl K. Fernandez, Bishop of Columbus, as celebrant and homilist.
Good morning, everyone. It is my delight as rector to welcome each of you to this Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception for this closing mass of the National Prayer Vigil for Life. Congratulations to all of you for braving the winter storm and standing up for life. This is a strong witness, a strong voice. We are pleased to have with us this morning Bishop Earl Fernandez as the celebrant for today's mass. Bishop Fernandez is the Bishop of Columbus, Ohio, and no stranger to Mary's shrine, as he was often with us for masses during his time of service at the Apostolic Nunciature here in Washington. We welcome as well Bishop John Barris of the Diocese of Rockville Center and Bishop Joseph Coffey, one of the auxiliary bishops for the Archdiocese for the Military Services. As we welcome each of you who are physically here in Mary's Shrine, we welcome those who join us at home through our live stream broadcast, Catholic TV, New Evangelization Television, Catholic Faith Network, We Are One Body Radio, and the Eternal Word Television Network who have made this telecast possible. May God bless us this day. And Mary Immaculate, Our Lady of Guadalupe, guide our efforts and safeguard the lives of the unborn and all of those who march for life this day. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Peace be with you. And with your spirit. Brethren, let us acknowledge our sins and so prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries. Jesus, you came to reconcile us to one another and to the Father. Lord Jesus, you heal the wounds of sin and division. Almighty God, have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. Amen. Let us pray. O God, who show a Father's care for all, grant in your mercy that the members of the human race to whom you have given a single origin may form in peace a single family and always be united by a fraternal spirit. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. A reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Upon those who dwelt in the land of gloom, a light has shone. You have brought them abundant joy and great rejoicing. As they rejoice before you as at the harvest, as people make merry when dividing spoils. For the yoke that burdened them, the pole on their shoulder, and the rod of their taskmaster, you have smashed, as on the day of Midian. For every boot that tramped in battle, every cloak rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for flames. For a child is born to us, a son is given us. Upon his shoulder, dominion rests. They name him Wonder Counselor, God Hero, Father Forever, Prince of Peace. His dominion is vast and forever peaceful. From David's throne and over his kingdom, which he confirms and sustains by judgment and justice, both now and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word of the Lord. salvation along the way of his star. 
Be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the doors were locked where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you forgive are forgiven them and whose sins you retain are retained. The Gospel of the Lord. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I will also welcome you to this basilica. I thank Monsignor Rossi for his kind words at the beginning of Mass. Your Excellencies, Reverend Fathers, my dear brothers and sisters in religious life, seminarians, my dear young people, all of you who have braved the snow and those joining by television and then live streaming and radio, to one and all, quoting the Lord Jesus, peace be with you. We have gathered for this annual March for Life, and we have listened to God's words. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. They shall call him Wonder Counselor, God Hero, Father Forever, Prince of Peace. These words bring us great joy and consolation. They sound very familiar to us, 
because they are proclaimed as the first reading at the Mass of Midnight on Christmas. We spent all of Advent journeying with a woman, the Holy Virgin Mary, the patroness of this basilica under the title of Immaculate Conception, journeying with her, accompanying her, and she accompanying us to celebrate then the birth of her son, who is the savior of the world. And at the birth of a child, the whole world celebrated. The angels above cried out glory to God in the highest. The shepherds made haste to see, and they saw the child and his mother. The magi followed the light of the star and came to the mother and her child. And life was something to be celebrated. A great light had shone upon the whole world. The Messiah was here. Our salvation was at hand, the fulfillment of the heart's deepest longing. But in his encyclical letter, The Gospel of Life, Pope St. John Paul II said there are always lights and shadows. And from the first appearance of the Savior, the grace of God appeared to us. There were always forces of darkness bent on extinguishing this light, destroying this life. One need only think of King Herod, who ordered all the innocent children to be slaughtered, rather than rejoicing at the birth of a child. He cared little for life and cared only for his rights and his power. And so there was this dark force opposing the light. Yet we are consoled also by the words of the prologue of the Gospel of John. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome the light. Yes, the people who sat in darkness had seen a great light. And sometimes we can interpret this even in light of our own experience, even in terms of politics. I was born in September of 1972, and in January of 1973, there was the infamous Roe versus Wade decision. And I lived with it for nearly 50 years. I would think about our empty churches and pews, our closed and shuttered seminaries and convents. I would look at empty desks and chairs in my classroom and look out on the playground to see children, but there were none. And I wondered, which of my classmates should be here who is not, who would have enriched my life and those around me? And I wondered. And then we had the Dobbs decision. And I thought, finally, the people in darkness have seen a great light. But as Bishop Burbage preached last night, sometimes you have victories and sometimes setbacks. In my own beloved state of Ohio, since the Dobbs decision, abortion has been enshrined in our Constitution. So too in Michigan and state after state, battle initiatives, ballot votes have been lost by pro-life forces. And sometimes we wonder, how could this have happened? Not unlike the Israelites when they were sent into exile in Babylon. And so we must accept our responsibility for our failure at times to proclaim the gospel of life and the fullness of the gospel in its integrity. We must accept responsibility and ask God for his mercy for the times that we not only have not treated unborn life with respect, but even the life of children and minors. We must accept responsibility 
for our failure to properly form conscience, especially of Catholics. Because over 50 years of legalized abortion, the conscience has become dull. But in the light of these defeats, do we simply give up? I remember my father often had my brothers and I meditate on Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and find life burdensome, and I will refresh you. Take my yoke upon your shoulders and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and your souls will find rest for themselves, for my yoke is easy and my burden light. And then my father would say, you know, Jesus says my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But he fell three times under the weight of his cross, but he got back up. And so even after defeats, we get back up and we march for life in radical solidarity with women and children, in radical solidarity with unborn children who are the weakest and most vulnerable members of our society. And we must ask ourselves, why? Because God is the author of life. He created man and woman in his image and likeness. All of us share the same human nature and have inherent dignity. Every person is willed by God, loved by God, created for love and to love. Every life matters, and that is why we march. But I began to think about why else did we lose? Some people say, well, because we were outmaneuvered politically. Perhaps we were foolish in placing too many eggs in the political basket relying on winning victories in courts or in legislatures, but not winning the true battle, which is for hearts. We need to refocus on winning hearts and converting people more deeply to the love of Jesus Christ. We frame arguments about a woman's right to choose or when parental consent laws are involved about parents' rights but when we do so, we forget about the right to life of the child. What does abortion do to a child? It takes his or her life. And that is the reality. Are we just going to stand by and do nothing? Or, in fact, will we say, I will stand for life. I will protect the weak and the innocent. Indeed, Pope Francis, in one of his Wednesday audiences commenting on the Ten Commandments, he poses another reason why. It's not simply we haven't focused on conversion of heart. He focused on the Fifth Commandment, thou shalt not kill, and he says, indifference kills. Indifference says, you don't matter to me. Do women matter to you? Do unborn children matter to you? Perhaps we think it's not my problem. She shouldn't have got pregnant anyway. Is that a solution to protecting life? 